This is the podcast for Woodland Presbyterian Church in Memphis, Tennessee. We are maturing God's people to serve a hurting world. We hope you enjoy the message, and if you'd like to learn more about our church, look us up at woodlandpres.org. Thanks so much. May the Lord bless you. Last summer, we had a chance to go out west and do a a trip, and we had a lot of fun journeys I've shared with you about us visiting the Redwood Forest. And, you know, I realized as we were going to drive from uh, Seattle down to L.A. that I had a bunch of family that lived along the way. And so we stopped and visited a bunch of my cousins, and that was really fun. And one of my cousins, uh, they had been uh, living in San Francisco, and she wanted to go to the Culinary Institute of America, which is in St. Helena, California, which is in Napa Valley, which is like, oh, Napa Valley, wine country, right? It's beautiful there. There's mountains and there are, uh, you know, vineyards everywhere. And so along the way, we stopped and they lived there. We were over there for the 4th of July and they had a pool, which was really nice because it was super exceedingly hot and dry in California at that time. But my cousin Rachel, having gone to culinary school and also uh, having a food truck uh, in Napa Valley, uh, in St. Helena. She's going to open up a taco shop called Ray Ray's Tacos, and she's named all the tacos after significant women in her life, including my Aunt Eleanor. It was amazing taco. So if you ever, you've reached the pinnacle of, um, of honor when you have a taco named after you. But it was really good, and so it was fun to visit with them. But one of the things that Rachel knows, having gone to culinary school, is, you know, which wine goes with what food? And so I don't know anything about that. And so she's like, well, here, try, try a sip of this. And this goes well with this. And so, and I remember having been out there once before, the whole process of winemaking is fascinating. And in some ways, it's an ancient trade that has largely remained unchanged. But in another way, it's a lot of technology as they're sorting out the grapes with these uh, computers now. It's just really amazing. But one of the things that helps some kinds of wine become more delicious is if they are able to age or to mature for a little while. Now, when I was reading about this, I realized that, that most wine should be, uh, should be partaken of within six months or a year. But there are some kinds that actually get better and they taste differently as they age. But there's a lot of factors that go into what makes that wine taste good, right? There's a little bit of oxygen in the bottle and there are acids and sugars that all interact. And as the, as the right kind of bottle with the right kind of wine, with the right kind of cork, in the right kind of place, sits over time, it matures and becomes even more delicious. There's something about time and chemical reactions and space that makes a wine taste better as it gets older. And I was thinking about this passage and I'm thinking about what is Paul challenging us to do as believers and he's calling us to mature. He's calling us to to grow up. Last week, the sermon title was Get Up, Wake Up, and See What God's Doing. I think this passage is calling us to to grow up. The vision of Woodland Presbyterian Church is to mature God's people to serve a hurting world. And so one aspect of that is to mature. And so how do we mature? Well, we have to have the right interactions going on. We need to be in the right environment, be exposed to God's word and sharing and serving and learning and growing. And as we face uh, the challenges of life, we learn and grow. And hopefully, if we're intentional, we start to mature and we become like a fine wine 
more delicious in our maturity, more mature, more desirable because of time that we've spent interacting with God's word and one another, we become the people that God wants us to be. Now, we know that there are ups and downs on that journey, and none of us are going to be perfect. And the more we follow Jesus, we realize the harder it is to be like Jesus, which means that we know how much Jesus loves us because he still loves us even as we are. But part of that journey is to mature in order that we might serve. And so in this text, there is a conflict. There's a disagreement that's happening in the church. And I would suggest that conflict and disagreement are really opportunities for us to mature as the people that God wants us to be. I know there's a tendency for us to want to avoid conflict or to to not want to upset people or not want to to get into a, a disagreement. But here there is a major disagreement that's happening in the church that's causing tension within the body. And Paul is giving them a solution to figure it out. And he's also giving us some guidance on what the blessing is if we engage in disagreement in a healthy way. So hopefully we'll be able to learn from that. What is the disagreement? What is it that's going on? Well, if we look at verse 1, we begin uh, to see. It says this, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him but not to quarrel over opinions. There is someone, obviously, who is not as strong in faith, who is weak in faith, and Paul is suggesting to to welcome that person who is weak in faith, not to quarrel with them. Remember last week we talked about quarreling? I was saying, I was suggesting that, that quarreling is when we are putting things other than Jesus first. Paul's not saying don't have disagreements, but he's saying don't quarrel. Don't welcome the person who's weak in faith just to quarrel with them, but rather welcome them. Verse 2, one person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. So now, is Paul saying that uh, people who eat vegetables are weak? Is he saying that vegetarians are weak? Is that what he's saying? Say no, somebody. No, somebody. Yeah, so sometimes, you know, this whole matter with food is a complicated matter, right? People say, I'm eating a biblical diet. I'm eating what the Bible says. Well, which part of the Bible, right? You know, Adam and Eve, they were vegetarians. There were no animals being roasted over the fire, right? So they, they were vegetarians. But we know that, that the, the priests, the Levitical priests, they would, they would kill bulls and, you know, they ate meat, right? And then you've got the Daniel diet, which is, you know, uh, it was a vegetarian diet, vegetables, fruit, and grains, right? That was, so which is the, the bi- biblical diet? None of them had Chick-fil-A, so how do we even know what they're supposed to be eating, right? So there's more than one biblical diet, and we know, like, hey, I've gone through phases in my life where I'm like, this is what I'm eating, and I'm not eating any of that other stuff. And there, I remember going to a dinner one time, and they put out a bunch of food, and I was like, I can't eat any of this stuff. And at that point in my life, I was like, I'm not eating any of this stuff. And now I go back and I just go, I I should have had that. I should have eaten it because it doesn't really matter because two weeks later I was eating it anyway. (laughs) You know, sometimes we put these things can create barriers for us. Now, we everyone like there are medical reasons to eat certain things and there are health reasons to eat certain things. I understand and respect all that. But sometimes we put what we eat above relationships. And that I think is is a challenging thing. And, and Paul is addressing this matter of, of what gets eaten in, in the community, right? 
He says in verse 3, Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. Let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? Later on in verse 15 he says, For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So we can see that there's some significant um, implications here. Obviously, what was going on in the community was significant enough that there could be deep hurt and offense taking place. And so Paul is saying, out of love, as you mature, as a believer, be sensitive to the needs and the concerns of others in your community about what they eat, about how they go about their life. So there's this dispute about what you can and what you can't eat. Some people are eating meat and some people aren't. Verse 2 again, one person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. Now, why would Paul say the weak person eats only vegetables? Now, it just kind of connects back to, for a second, this story that I talked about at the beginning of the sermon about who are the people of God, right? They were a certain person set apart from the world with a specific directive on how they were called to live. They were called to be set apart as holy, right? If you've read through Leviticus, if you're reading through the Bible this year, you're through Leviticus by now, and you're through Numbers by now, and you made it, well done. Deuteronomy is much better for those of you on an annual plan. I know where you are, right? But Leviticus just gives us all this direction as to what you can and can't eat. And part of that, and there was a health benefit there for sure, but really what God was doing was saying, I want to set you apart by not eating these certain things, not wearing these certain things, not doing these certain things, because I want you to be a separate people. I want you to be distinct from the culture around you, noticeably distinct. Now for them, it may have even made them feel a little bit weird. But Paul says, I want you to be, there's an aspect of being part of my chosen people that makes you different from the people who you are around that aren't part of my people. And that's, I think, an important thing for us to think about. Are there ways, as a follower of Jesus, that I'm different than the people that are around me? I talked about a few weeks ago. We don't want to be so different that we can't even communicate with the people around us, but we want to be different enough in what we do and what we don't do that sets us apart as followers of Jesus. And so these people had been given certain dietary restrictions that said, you cannot eat these things. You cannot eat these things. But something happened that was radical. Something happened that was powerful. Jesus came. Jesus came in and he came and he filled, fulfilled the ceremonial law, which had so much of those dietary restrictions. Jesus also fulfilled the moral law which convicts us of sin and makes us, makes us uh, demonstrates that we are sinful. Jesus fulfills that and makes us righteous. He removes our sin and he removes our shame. But then there's this other matter of all the other law. What do we do with that? Do we still need to abide by all those Old Testament laws? Well, the answer is no, because why? Jesus has fulfilled those realities for us. You can say, I'd like to observe this diet if you choose, but you don't have to. And when Jesus comes in, he changes everything. You may, may remember in the book of Acts when Peter has this vision of a sheet that's coming down and basically God is saying to him, what you eat is not that important. You can eat these other animals that are considered unclean by the Old Testament. And this is a huge change 
because now they were permitted to eat different things. They didn't need to eat certain things to make them clean. Jesus had made them clean. Jesus, through his work on the cross, had made them separate, set apart from the world. What made them distinct now was that they were followers of Jesus. And so in Romans, when Paul is writing to a church that has a number of Jewish members, he's saying, those who only eat vegetables, those who will not eat meat out of concern that eating that meat might make them unclean, are not really trusting in the gospel in a full sense. Right? They're thinking, you know, I know that Jesus has saved me and he's fulfilled me and I'm everything. I know that I'm permitted to eat this meat that was once considered unclean. But you know what? Just to be safe, I'm not going to eat it because just in case, I want to know that I'm doing the right thing. But Paul is calling that person weak in faith because they're not really trusting that, yes, you can eat this if you desire. That's why He's saying those that eat only vegetables are the ones who are weak. Now, what's interesting, though, is that Paul, you know, Romans isn't the only letter that he's ever written, right? He wrote a letter to another church, a church in Corinth. And the church in Corinth is a totally different situation, right? Because uh, this church in Rome, while it's in a, it's in a Greek city, it has a number of Christian or never Jewish believers in it. The church in Corinth may have some Jewish believers, but Corinth was a pagan Greek city. And the opposite problem is going on in Corinth. He wrote them a letter to address a conflict that they were experiencing. You see, what's interesting, though, is that for Greeks, food was often dedicated to idols to honor them. So if you ate the food that was dedicated to a god, like Zeus, for example, then you pleased that god and you won that god's favor. In Corinth, the culture said, you need to eat all the food dedicated to all these idols. And the temptation for believers in Corinth was to undervalue the power of the gospel by covering your bases in a different way. In Rome, it was, don't eat the meat. In Corinth, it was, you better eat all the meat. Do you see the difference there, right? So the, the, Jews, the Jewish Christians in Rome may have been saying, we better not do that. The, 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 uh, the Greek Christians in Corinth maybe were saying, you better do that. And both of them were in error. It's not about what you eat. It's about what are you putting your hope in? Because if I'm putting my hope in that this food that was honored, given to Zeus, is going to help me in some way, then I'm not fully trusting in the power of Jesus to set me free and to give me life. See, the answer to the problem is that Jesus has forgiven us completely. Now, there's not some certain way of eating that's necessary for the believer. All Christians have freedom to eat what they desire. We also have to be wise in what we eat, but we have freedom. Because it's not not eating, and it's not eating that makes us right with God. And so in Romans, when, when Paul is writing to a church that had a number of Jewish members, he's saying, to those who only eat vegetables, those, again, who won't eat meat because it may make them unclean, they're not trusting fully in the gospel. It's this idea that somehow, even though I'm in Christ, I still really need to obey the food laws. 
just in case. I'm just covering my bases. I'm just making sure. Yes, I trust in Jesus, but I have this lucky rabbit's foot. And just in case, I'm going to rub my lucky rabbit's foot. Now, how many of you guys had a lucky rabbit's foot? I had one when I was a kid. Those are not a thing anymore. I did see that Vanessa in the thing saved 80 rabbits, though. I, did, I noticed that in her deal, right? Maybe that's why we're not seeing those rabbits feed anymore. She saved them. But it's this idea that, like, you know, okay, yeah, I'm trusting in God, but I've got to take care of this other stuff, too, along the way that really isn't faithful, but I just want to cover my bases. The Romans were doing it, and the Greeks were doing it. So here's a couple of things that we learn from this situation. First of all, no matter how far I've come and how long I've been following Jesus, there's a tendency for me to trust in idols for my hope. Now, the idols of our day are not little uh, silver figurines or wooden statues that we bow down to. Those are not the kind of idols that we have in our world anymore. Uh, in fact, idols are often good things, but good things that have become ultimate things. Good things that have become ultimate things. I have an over-desire for this thing, and an obvious one is money. Right? Money is a good thing, but money can also become an ultimate thing. So, for example, God entrusts resources to us for us to glorify him, but instead of taking what God has given us, and returning it to him. And we realize that your ability to make money is a gift from God. Right? Maybe you say, well, I'm really smart. And um, because I'm smart, I have this ability to make money. God hasn't given me this money. I'm just smart. Or maybe I'm really good at relationships. And, you know, God didn't give me the money. I'm just good at relationships and I can make deals. Or I'm really good at accounting and I can add things up. And that's what I did. But God gave you those abilities. He gave you the intellect. He gave you the relational skill. He gave you the accounting ability, those are gifts. And so when God gives you something, you're called to use them for his glory. And God calls us to give generously to the work of his kingdom through the church and through and into the world. But there's this tendency for us to say, well, I'm trusting in this idol for either comfort or security or status. And it's not the same for everybody. Like one person says, I like being known as a person who makes lots of money. I feel good when people know that I make a lot of money and I have a good financial status. Other people say, I feel good when I can see, you know, the, the, it's going up and to the right. When the bank account is going high, I feel safe and secure. And when the markets struggle, I struggle because I'm worried that if I don't have enough money for the long run, then that is going to really negatively impact my life. And that's the thing that I put my hope in. My security is not in Jesus. I trust God. I believe you, Jesus. But man, when the, when the market's up, I'm up. And the market's down, I'm down. Now, I'm not saying that you're happy if the market's down. Who's excited about high gas prices? Not me. But my hope is not in the oil markets. My hope is in Jesus. And when I feel concerned about the markets or about the budget, I can say, Lord, please remind me that you are my provider. Remind me that you have given me everything that I have, that you will provide for me in every way. And even if I don't have always what I want, I will always have what I need. And it's because of your hand of provision that you will give it to me. And so for that, Lord, I can rejoice. Because I have a tendency, I have a temptation to look at money as something for power or security or comfort or joy. I think we all do. We all fit into one of those categories. So the idol is money. And you can fill in the blank. What are, there's a million things that can be in that one place that only God should be. Maybe you have a helping idolatry. 
Life only has meaning or I only have worth if people are dependent upon me and need me. Codependency. If I'm rescuing people, then I'm significant. If I'm not helping somebody, I'm going to find somebody to bail out. Family idolatry. Life only has meaning. I only have worth if my children and or my parents are happy and happy with me. I won't say anything harsh to my kids or to anyone in my family because I don't want them to not like me, even if they need to hear it and it's true. Achievement idolatry. Life only has meaning. I only have worth if I'm being recognized for my accomplishments, if I'm excelling in my career. Am I the one getting the award at the end of the quarter? Do people notice? Has everyone known that my kid got an award? My child got a participation trophy like every other kid in the league, and I want to show it to you on the Facebook. Work idolatry. Ooh, life only has meaning. I only have worth if I'm highly productive. I'm getting a lot done. Are you getting a lot done? Are you busy? Did you get a lot done today? How was your day? Did you get a lot done? I got a lot done. What did you get done? Let's, co let's compare. Let's look at my list and your list and see who got more done. The question is, are the things on the list even worth doing? I ask myself that question. If you're a list maker, look at your list and go, is this a worthwhile list? All these things we can trust in. And so instead of fully trusting in Jesus, I look to other things, whether it's eating or not, to cover my bases. And so Paul is reminding us that we can't look to these things because they're never going to satisfy. Because work or money or achievement, it's a bottomless pit. But Jesus is a fountain of life. The other thing that we learn is how difficult it is for us to see those things that we trust in without other people in our lives. It's very, very hard for me to see the blind spots in my life. You know why? They're blind spots, right? Well, you're driving along and you can't see the car. Why? Because there's something blocking you. It's a blind spot. Now, all the new cars have cameras and sensors, right? Beep, 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 beep. Don't pull over. But you have a blind spot. It's because you can't see it. And you know who the best person is to help you to see it? Your spouse, <laughs> your dad, your brother, your sister, the person sitting next to you in church right now, someone else. Someone else, including the Bible, right? But we can read right over the Bible and go, oh, this applies to you. <laughs> I was, someone else needs to hear this sermon. They're blind spots. And so in, in Rome, what's fascinating is that the Jewish Christians couldn't see that their tendency was to fall back into their old ways of not eating things. We better not eat the things so that we can be right with God. In Corinth, the Greek Christians could not see that their tendency was to fall back into their old ways of being right with God, the gods, by eating meat that was sacrificed to the gods. And you know what? They needed each other. They need each other. That's why we need each other. This is not just an individual thing, though. This is also a communal thing. Communities need to see other people and other, and other peoples to understand where we have blind spots as a church, as a nation, as a community. If we're not in conversation with people, other people, even people with whom we disagree, especially with people with whom we disagree, then we will never see the blind spots that God wants to reveal to us so that we can be the most mature believers that he wants us to be. 
Verse 14 says, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Paul is saying that our underappreciation and trust in the gospel damages the community, damages our family, damages our church, damages our city, the, the country, the world. And haven't we seen that in the polarization of our times? Instead of coming together in, our, in the crises, many people have separated. They feel more isolated than ever before. They just desire or, or, or they desire to be around people who are more like them. If I can only get people who agree with me on these matters, then I'll be happy. But there's this fascinating things, this thing that exists, right? So if you have a continuum of, of radical this way or radical this way, right, centrist, you know, whatever, left, right, and then you get to the end, if you are in a community of people, studies have shown that if everybody is on this side of the, of the thing, left or right, whichever, pick one, left or right, let's say you're over here and there's a group of people, the more this group of people spends time with each other, eventually the person who has the most moderate view will eventually move to the most extreme view along with everyone else. So whether you're really liberal or you're really conservative, if you're in a community of people and you only spend time with that community of people, everybody moves farther out. So that's the importance why we need to be in relationship with people who have differing political views than us, differing views on race, on all the important issues of the day. Right? I mean, we live in a city where uh, white people are the minority. If you live in the city of Memphis, you live close enough to Memphis, maybe Germantown, maybe you live in Mississippi, but we're still in the greater Memphis area. We're the minority. And it's important for us as most of those of us who are white to be in relationship with people who are not white, like friendship kind of relationship. Not I just see them at the store, I just happen to work near a person, but to be an authentic relationship, to be able to say, tell me what it's like for you to be an African-American in the United States today. Help me understand your story. Help me understand what it's like for you uh, to be a Latino in our community. How do you experience the world? How do you experience the church? How do you experience life? Because I guarantee you it's gonna be a blessing to you to help to reveal blind spots. It's not a sin to have a blind spot, right? You can't see it. It's a sin not to acknowledge it and to deal with it. And what happens when we do? I mean, look at what happened in the Church of Rome. It changed the world. They didn't change the world by having rallies. They changed the world by changing one heart at a time where each person began to mature, began to grow. And here's the thing, this is something that I realized a while ago. There was an issue that happened in culture, and I made a comment about it on Facebook, lamenting uh, what had happened in Charlottesville, Virginia, because I thought it was, you know, really uh, a, a sad display of where we are as a, as a community. And I, and I realized that, like, you know, I was looking at my Facebook feed, this is three or four years ago, and I thought, all my friends are white people. I have friends who are African-American, some who are Latino, but like, as a percentage... There's just lots of white people. I love white people. I am one. And I'm thankful to be one. God put me in the family that I did. I was born in North Dakota. We were from Iowa, right? We're white. But I live in a world that is not white. I live in a world of beautiful colors and different languages and different systems and values. And it's going to benefit and bless me if I'm engaging with people who are different from me so that I can not only see the world through their eyes, but I can see myself 
through their eyes. And so I made it, um, and I made an effort to say, I'm going to make intention about getting into relation, meaningful relationship with some guys who can be in conversation with me. And one person said, isn't that racist? And I said, well, I, I think it's actually a desire to learn, to be in community with people who are different from me so that I can understand what my blind spots are. Now, way I am on the journey with that. I'm on the, and we as a church, we're on the journey with that. But here's the question for you as you think about this. Who are you in relationship with that is a peer, someone in your workplace, someone in your community who speaks the same language that you do, and not like literal language, obviously you have to speak English unless you speak another language, but, but is, is a peer that you can be in conversation with, that you can ask questions of and you can learn from, and you can see what God wants to do in your life. I would suggest that it'd be good for all of us to be intentional about saying, hey, let's get together because I want to have some conversation with you. Just be friends and talk, but also say, I have something more I'm wanting to try to learn. And it's about me and it's about you. When people call me in to do that, I'm always open. I bet the people that you know would be open as well. Because we learn that there's like lots of different ways to do things. When we were in uh, in Beirut, I was the, the, the team that we support uh, has a, a nice apartment and it overlooks this intersection. And one of the craziest things about uh, Beirut that's different to me is how they drive, right? It's, it's like uh, Nick has said to us, one of the team members there, he was, it's like a river that's flowing and you just have to get into the river. And imagine a river with fish swimming. Every once in a while, there's one swimming in the wrong direction. There are very few stoplights. There's lots of roundabout turns and, and circles. And you're just kind of going and flowing. People are honking all the time. And if they honk at you, it doesn't mean they want to fight you. It just means that, hey, I'm here. We're honking, honk. And I was just, it was just fun to watch this pattern because there's very little stopping and starting. Like when you drive in traffic, it's lots of stops and starts. Stay in your lane. If someone moves over to the side of your lane, you're like, what are you doing, man? Stay in your lane. Well, there, there's no lane. It's just like, and it was chaotic. But then I thought about it. I was like, I haven't seen one accident. They're just all getting where they want to go. Which one's right? Well, if you live in America, you got to drive and obey the laws. But if you try to do that in Beirut, they're going to be honking at you, and they might want to fight you, you know? It's a different way, but one's not right. Now, there are things that are right, and the moral law of God is right. We read that in the Ten Commandments and all that it implies. But these are non-essential matters. I love the beauty of the EPC that says unity in the essentials, diversity in the non-essentials, and charity in all. In verse 17, he says, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. I love that Paul says that. Keep in mind that Jesus uh, that, that Luke describes Jesus as the son of man came eating and drinking. He was a guy who loved to celebrate and to have parties. Jesus was. But it's not only about what we eat. It's not only about our viewpoints. It's about righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. And the way that we can access that and do that is to know that this Jesus, who has it perfectly correct, who knows all the right ways, entered into time and space to love us and to welcome us into his family and to draw near to us by his grace so that we would be restored and welcomed with God and to God, but not just for that purpose, but that we would be sent out. Go as people on mission. 
Your mission field is Starbucks with your friend. It's to go to Perkins and get a slice of pie with someone who's different from you. How many of you guys like pie? Yes, Anna Karras likes pie. First hand up. You get a pie. We had a great pie from Fresh Market with Wild Berry. Buy a pie, get a friend and some ice cream and say, let's have a piece of pie together and talk about it. Talk about life. How many of you can do that? I know you all can. It's just saying, Lord, who would you have me to do this with so that I can understand and live out the gospel values? You don't have to fix anything. You don't have to solve anything. You're just entering into conversation with someone different to hear and understand and to grow because Jesus entered into a relationship with people who were very, very different from him because he loves us and he sends us for that same purpose. Will you pray with me? Thank you for listening to this message from Woodland Presbyterian Church, maturing God's people to serve a hurting world. Again, if you'd like to learn more about our congregation, please visit us at woodlandpres.org. Thank you very much, and God bless you today.